This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the first installment of the Winter 2017 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. Tonight we have Mark Sylvester with us. He is a serial entrepreneur, and he has a very interesting and eclectic path to entrepreneurship that I can't, uh, can't wait to share with you. Um, back in 2003, Mark was approached by a semi-well-known at the time, but certainly much more well-known organization now, the, uh, the, TED, the TED Talks, for a TED conference. And what their idea at the time was, let's, let's have a conference, but we don't want it to be like everybody else's conference, where people show up, don't know anybody, and then leave and say what happened. We want to set up a virtual community so that when people show up to this conference, they already know who's coming. Hopefully, they've already made some connections with some of the people that are coming. Uh, and then when they're there, they can have more meaningful interactions because they're not starting cold. And then after the conference is over, they can continue those interactions because we've created a virtual community. They reached out to Mark to do that. Mark and his team built that solution. And they realized, this is a company. This is a solution. This is something that, that a lot of organizations could benefit from. And that became Intro Networks, which Mark is the founder and CEO of. They have subsequently done the same thing for hundreds of organizations all over the world, uh, creating lots and lots of uh, interesting virtual communities. So Mark has been involved and been on the leading edge of software technology for the past 25 years. As the co-founder of Wavefront Technologies, he and his team created the world's first commercial um, piece of software that would allow you to render in 3D and to do animation. Think about that. What that evolved into is what we call today CGI. We see it all the time. We see it in commercials. We see it in movies. It's kind of we've gotten to where like ho-hum, right? These, these movies have to just up the ante over and over and over again because we've seen so much incredible stuff. Well, Mark and his team were the first to create that capability. It really changed the way we, we consume um, entertainment. So it'd be one thing for me to stand on this stage, you guys know Mark's coming up here, and for me to say, wow, that was so amazing, that software was great, it was incredible. It's not just me. That software won multiple Academy Awards. People in the, in the film industry said, the things, Mark, that you and your company are doing are so game-changing that we want to give you an Academy Award um, as, as recognition of that. Lots and lots of movies. I could spend all the rest of our time listing all the movies that the technology was used in. One of my favorites was Lord of the Rings. Uh, the scene where the Black Riders are just about to cross the river and get into Rivendell, and that would not have been good. Even if you don't know the storyline, you can imagine that Black Riders and Rivendell wouldn't have been good. And all of a sudden, this, this uh, stream starts, um, the water starts rushing down the stream, and then the water changes into horses virtual horses that wipe out the poor, unfortunate black riders. And I remember reading that as a child and having this mental image of what that must look like. And when I saw it rendered on the screen with Mark's software, I was like, that was perfect. That was amazing. That's just one of many examples. And The Phantom Menace, there was a number of scenes that Mark's technology played a big role in, and on and on and on and on. So really someone who's changed the way that um, Hollywood makes movies. So as you know, Mark got involved with the TED conference very early, early on. He's become a TEDster. He's become someone that people go to that are, when they're going to speak at a TED talk and they want to get, um, they wanna get um, pointers. They want to make sure their TED uh, talk is, is very impactful. He's put on his own TEDx conferences, and he's gone around the world and helped other people put on uh, TED conferences. And it's for a lot of reasons. As you're going to see, Mark is, is a very eloquent speaker. He should have been a professor. Uh, he's a great educator. Um, but it's also because Mark likes this, likes this idea of ideas that are worth spreading and helping those ideas spread. So he sees that as, as part of his mission in life through his podcasting um, and through um, all of his commitment to the startup community. So Mark likes to do a lot of things for fun. And I like one thing he does that I think is a neat combination of two of his passions. I already told you about his passion of bringing groups together and creating these communities. He's also very passionate about food. He was a chef, a professional chef, for many, many years before he became a tech entrepreneur. And once a month, he gets together a group of folks, teaches them how to cook a meal. Um, they have some fun doing that. And then, obviously, they have fun sharing that meal together. I think that's uh, just a great example of when you can take your passions and you can actually turn them back and, and turn them back as gifts back to other people. So that's a fun thing that Mark does. But it's also, obviously, a lot of fun for the people that participate. I'm super excited that Mark was able to join us tonight. Let's welcome him to our class.
So we only have three minutes left because I took all of our time in the intro. So talk fast. I get a phone call. It's 9 o'clock at night. It's from the technical director on set Lord of the Rings mm. in uh, New Zealand. And he says, Mark, I need help. There's this scene. Yeah, it's a killer scene. And, it, and the line says, and the water forms into these horses. Says that's the only direction they had. And they had a guy in-house. They did a lot of software development there at Weta. Yep. But the software was, he called it a facility killer. For one frame of film, it takes 24 frames to make a second. One frame of film was taking a terabyte of data. It's a lot. Right. And swamping all of the servers they had. He said, Mark, are you guys working on fluid dynamics? And I said, well, yeah, in six months. Right, and he right. said, we need to accelerate that. We need to do something. So we ended up mailing our guy who was working on that to, to New, New Zealand, Zealand to work on that and solve that problem for wow. him. I hadn't thought about that in years. Well, I, 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 re I remember that from many years ago when you and I were talking about some of the accomplishments that, that your company was um, able to achieve. And I meant what I said. I remember reading that book in fourth grade and having this vivid image in my head. And when I saw it, I'm like, well, they're never going to be able to make this work. Like, you know, because I knew what was going to happen. And I was like, oh, my God, they did it exactly like Tolkien described it. Well, that's the power of storytelling, right? Because yep. we make we, we, really great storytellers put you into the location, which is what we kind of teach people in doing TED Talks, but how do I get you there? But when I'm reading, I make that story up in my head. Right. So before that, five years before that happened, we get a call from the technical director. He said, we'd like to talk to you. We're doing a film that we can't tell you about until we see you when you do an NDA. Mm. And... Uh, we did find out it was for Lord of the Rings, and I took the head of uh, development at the time, who, as I learned, was a Tolkien scholar. Mm. And he, he was like, well, how are they going to do the ball rock? And right, how are right, they going right. to do this? And how are they going to do that? Yep. And our drive down to L.A. was a master class for me in Tolkien, mm -hmm. and we set up well, we ended up getting the contract, and we helped them produce all three films. And it was killer. I mean, that was a tough book to make, yeah. an understatement of the century, right? It was a very difficult book. It was a well-known book. It was a long book. It was an involved yeah. book. Um, and to be able to pull that off with the... And, you know, technology's come a long way even since then. To be able to pull it off back then was, was remarkable. They knew that things hadn't been invented yet. Mm. So they shot all the principal photography for all three films at one mm. time and then parceled out the work. So if you are a real student of it, you'll see that the effects work gets better and more right. complex. Like Star Wars, which you also worked on. Exactly. Yeah, and they just keep getting better and better and better. Exactly. So I just watched, um, and last aside on the movies, I watched Civil War, which is a superhero movie with my son last night. Mm. The CGI is so good, you're like, it, you can't even tell. Like, right. Like, you can't tell what's human, what's right. not human, what's real, what's not It real. used to be you could see the, yeah. where the A team at ILM would be working on one film and then the B team and the C team, <laughs> right, right. like Congo, I think, was the C right, right. team. You could Sharknado. See, yeah. It's budgets, right? That's it's not all, real? Like, it has to be like, I thought that yeah. was real. Exactly. Yeah, but, I mean, I think, it's, I think we all, as consumers of, of images and of entertainment, if you go all the way back to the 40s, you just sort of forgive it. You're like, yeah, that's the way they make these you know, back seat backdrops, or that's how they green screen or whatever. But we become more and more demanding as consumers as we see what that Absolutely. frontier is. So what's the frontiers later, the norm, right? And then it just keeps going. It does also get back to the storytelling. Yep. Because it's about that suspension of disbelief. I'm going to walk in there, the light's going to go down. And it, imagine how hard it is for me to watch that kind of film. Yeah, right. right? Cause, so what I want, what I appreciate is a really great story and a great director where I don't want to see those things. I'm not looking for those things. Right. I want to get in, I want to be in that world for two hours. Once again, any tool, we've seen it overused. We've gone to movies where the CGI was so ridiculously overdone that right. you were like, was there a story there? Were there right. actors in that one? Yeah. Right. Well, I want to go back in time a little bit and talk about your path sure. that I mentioned during the intro. So you were a drummer at six and a chef yeah. at seven. So yeah. what, what was that about? Um, were you drumming uh, with the forks and the spoons? No, or? my mom liked to throw these parties 
that would start on Friday night and end at Sunday brunch. I wish I had known her. Yeah, right? Jeez. Uh, and and it, they, were, they were jazz parties, and so there would be musicians would come and go throughout the whole weekend. Where was this? This is down in Los Angeles in the LA, Valley. Okay. And uh, I, they, they thought it was cute to take the little kid and set him on the drums. <laughs> but then they found I really liked that, so I would get drums and I, I'd get set in the kitchen and I would learn um, the rudiments. There's, there's 47 of them. And I would be taught those and just play right, right. there and then started from then. Do you still play? No, no. I, when I was 18, I hawked them because uh, I felt if I was going, I wanted to be a family man. Right. I decided when I was 12, I wanted to be a grandfather. And that. I, and true, he pulled it off at 14. Tr- true story. Crazy. Uh, and, I, and I felt that uh, being a drummer was a lifestyle that wasn't uh, compatible mm. or aligned with what my life goal was. So Sounds I, like somebody mature beyond their years. Yeah. I got lucky. <laughs> so but then talk to me about wanting to be a chef. So starting cooking at seven and then... Yeah, my, my mom was a nurse and she, so she did shift work. So she would do day shifts, swing shift, graves. Yep. And when she was days, she'd be home at two, three in the afternoon. And she loved just working through cookbooks, just not doing the same thing mm-hmm. twice. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I got that from her and then I would... Uh, you know, try to replicate that. So I'd always be in the kitchen. It was really fun. It was always different. I'm uh, insanely curious about everything. Which a lot of entrepreneurs are. Yeah, I think you have to have that. Yep. I'm not sure if that bit is flipped in the up or down, but you know, <laughs> it's it's just wanting to learn new things, right? And, enjoying it. And it's also it was a, for me. It was uh, it was always about art and how I could make money from the art. I never did art for art's sake. So. Food to me was always art. I'm yep. start, I start with nothing except yep. an appetite right. uh, and raw ingredients. And then I, there's something amazing two hours later. Like, you look at bread. You start with dry ingredients, and sugar yep. and flour and water, and then you could have just a simple loaf or a complicated, twisted, beautiful thing three hours later that nourishes someone. Someone goes, God, that was, that was amazing. So what, what you get was you got instant grat, from that, because mm-hmm. I did something really soon. Yep. I satisfied a need. You're hungry. I fixed that. Yep. It, we eat with our eyes. So I learned how to make it really pretty. So as an artist, I was fulfilled. As a business person, I was making money by doing that. Mm-hmm. And there's always a story around the food. Like, well, why did you decide to do this? Mm-hmm. Well, it, mm-hmm. you know, and yep. I like telling stories. Yep. And we, you and I have talked offline about endorphins firing when you complete a project. Absolutely. And when you're satisfied about, like yeah. with me, it's writing. Right. With you, it's a lot of things, but including cooking. So for some people, though, they can take a hobby like that, but then when it becomes a vocation, it loses its allure. Doesn't seem like that was the case with you. You went from amateur kitchen chef to professional chef and seemed to still enjoy that transition. And there was a chef who explained why I liked it so much to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did institutional food service. I, I ran the uh, off-campus food service here at UCSB. I didn't know that. Uh, back in the day. Uh, so Tropicana, it was better Studio than, Plaza. It was better then. I had $2.65 to feed you all three meals a day, all you could eat. $2.65. Paid twice that for my coffee. You get a half coffee. a latte. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Um, but in, um, in the restaurant, uh, as a chef... Uh, you go in, we go and have something to eat, and it's really delicious, and we come back the next week, and we bring our friends, and I'm going to have that same thing because uh-huh. it was so delicious. Right. If it tastes different, I'm upset because mm-hmm. I've just been selling this short ribs to you. Like, yep. these are so great. Yep. So as a chef, uh, the food has to stay the same because the people change. There's new people in the restaurant all the time. Yep. In institutional food service, the people stay so the food has to change. Mm. So we learned how to do four-month menus where literally everything was different. So when you think about it that way, it's like, oh, yeah. I get to do something new all the time. Yeah, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. It's funny because I'm, te- I'm kind of like that with teaching. I want to deliver a good product. I, 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 when someone takes another class from me after they already took one, I feel right. like I've succeeded. So I can see how you would feel the same way with somebody coming back and... When you, when you said I should be a professor, as um, I, uh, I love to teach. I think the the teacher student relationship is on the, both sides of the Agreed. different side of the same coin, Agreed. right? Yep. If you're a great student, you'll make a great teacher, and the reverse. 
My problem is I can't teach the same thing, mm. and which is why with that the gentleman's dining club where I'm teaching guys how to cook, it's uh, it's got to be different every time because otherwise I'm I'm bored. Is it literally gentlemen, or do you ever? I have scoundrels. No, I meant women. <laughs> do you do it for? No, it's guys. Oh, okay. It's guys because guys um, guys feel uh, because they don't know how to cook. They, they know how to order food. They know how to pay for dinners. They know how to go to great restaurants. They know what they like. Mm. But they have a reticence, uh, a lack of certainty in the kitchen. And so it's, it's really, it's, it's not hard. We've been feeding ourselves for thousands right, of right. years. Yep. We're hunter-gatherers. We know how to do that. And so it's just simple um, confidence. And so it's the same things I teach in leadership coaching I bring to the kitchen. Right. So tell me about your first, one maybe it wasn't your first, but one of your entrepreneurial endeavors, I think at 12, was it? Yeah, that was, um, with that one, I, I didn't like, well, so my mom said, I'm not going to give you an allowance. So if you want to make, if you want money, you need to figure it out. Note, if you want to turn your children into entrepreneurs, don't give them an allowance. It teaches them to, like, punch a clock, like, hey, I took the trash out, give me some money. Right? Tell them to go do something, create something, and exactly. then make, make some money. And Brilliant. I didn't like... She was a smart nurse who liked jazz. Yeah, exactly. And liked me and wanted me to su- uh, succeed. I didn't want to mow lawns. Um, and I found that everybody had windows in their house. Mm. And so I could wash windows. And I'm tall. So I could easily... I was uh-huh. a tall kid. I thought you so were going to say windows. you walked around and broke windows and sold them windows. That's a good idea. No, I'm no. glad you didn't do that. I, I, I washed them, and then when I was 16, uh, my girlfriend at the time, her mom worked at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and they said, Mark, Mark's an artist. Do you think he would come and paint the windows mm. in the pediatric unit for the kids? Nice. I'd never done that. Uh, I don't know the word no. Exactly. So I said... Sure, I can do that. And we went and drove around San Fernando Valley looking at Christmas windows. And I had a sketchbook, and I'm sketching Santa Claus and reindeer and those kind of things. And yep. when bought the paints and went to the pediatric unit, and it was a whole long length of windows, and I painted a full snow scene. And I loved it because all the kids are watching, and I could talk, and this, yep. I'm doing this, and they're all excited, and they all loved it. And again, it's the instant grat part of that. Yep. And I came back home, and I still had all the paint. I'd hardly used any paint. It's like, huh, I bet I could go out to Van Nuys Boulevard, and I'll go to where I buy my clothes, and I'll say, could I paint your windows? And they go, well, yeah, how much? And I said, I'll just take clothes. Mm. And they're like, okay, well, of course we'll do that. Right. And then I just, hey, I, I painted that guy's windows, and I'd like to paint your windows. And that turned into a thing that when I moved to Santa Barbara, I became the window painter wow. in Santa Barbara, and I, uh, it was funny because it was all cash, Right. and I took and saved all that money, and at one point someone said, what are you going to do with all that money? I said, I don't know, and I bought a computer with it, and that's <laughs> how I got interested in right. computer graphics. I bought an Atari You're already an artist, so it made sense that you were... And a business guy, so I'm right, thinking, right, right. can I use the computer to keep track of all these clients because at Christmas time I've got you know, 200 businesses to paint. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go do all the ones on Milpas first because I could sort by zip code and mm-hmm. streets. And But little, there was no printer drivers. There was no color. There was no right. storage. There was right. no any of that. I didn't know that about you, the, the yeah. bu- I mean, the, the painting business. So I'm going to stop for a second because there's a couple, there's been lots of good stuff here. Two things I want to highlight about being an entrepreneur. One, the curious thing I could not agree with more. Where we are curious people, yeah. and we enjoy learning something new. It's not a burden. And two, something else you said was this I can't say no uh, if you look at you know notable entrepreneurs, they, most of them had a point in their lives where they were asked or an opportunity was given them that they had never done before, and rather than going, well, I don't, I haven't really, I don't know, they go, yes, I'll do it, and then they school, they get schooled on it, and they do a good job. They don't just say yes and then you know, do a half-ass job. They really make it work. It makes me think of um, when Oprah was her, her, had that break in Chicago where they said, we want you to come to Chicago, a big market, and we want you to do a local morning show. Great. Uh, they said, it's a cooking show. You know how to cook, right? She's like, yes. And right. She just did it. Exactly. Right? She wasn't a cook. She wasn't a chef. But you know, she, another person might have said, well, I don't want to do a cooking show. I'm really not a cook. But what if I do another kind of show? And they would have said, next. We need right. a cooking show, right. right? 
Yeah, so be confident enough in yourself and then go to school on whatever it is they're asking you to do and do a good job. My coach calls that um, getting the tap on the shoulder. Right. And it's being self-aware to know that was a tap. Right. Right. Oh, okay. And I'm also an improver, so everything's yes and, right? So it's like, <laughs> yeah. yep, I'm going to do that. Right. And, and you, I think one of the things that happens is you get overcommitted and you start yeah, to find out. So you want to know, you know, where, what's your path? And then what are all the lines of effort it takes to get to that path? Right. And then can I take a little side journeys along that? And, and while it may not look from the outside like there's a, a, a rhyme or reason to what I do, yep. all of, and for me, it all weaves together naturally. One of the questions I got when I went from the kitchen to Wavefront was, how, how did you go from the kitchen to Wavefront? How, yeah. how does that work? And right. I said, well, it's exactly the same. I mean, from an artistic point of view, creating something from nothing, it's the same. I would sit down. I have a blank screen. I'm going to make a picture of whatever it is. It's, that's the same to me. Um, when I'm cooking, I've, I know that people are going to eat at 6, so I have to work backwards, and I have to do a lot of different things at the same time. To deliver the product. To, to get done, and yep. I have to manage yep. all of that and people. Yep. So that was the same, because now I have windows, and... I'm managing a lot of different things. So for me, it was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It gave us uh, an interesting competitive advantage because here's a tech guy who has his roots in the hospitality industry, and the reputation Wavefront had was it was a company with a heart, Mm. with a soul. Like, we really cared about our customers before it was... uh, that was what you did, yeah, right? right? I mean, it's like now it's customers first. Well, yeah. Right. Like if you're in the restaurant business, it's always about that. Yeah, I know you ordered a BLT, and when we delivered it, you said you didn't want bacon. Okay, well that you're right. Right, right. You know, so it's the same thing for us in tech. It, it, it did set LT. us apart. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about culture uh, in a minute. Um, I'm going to go to the next first student question after this one. So first principles are kind of big now. A lot of people talk about their first principles. Do you have any that you want to share? And were there any that you think you didn't live up to as you kind of look back on your career? So principles and values and, and what the culture is based on, I think the first exercise we had in that where that really hit home was a, an off-site we did at Wavefront. And we brought a guy in to help us figure that out. And I said... I don't believe any of that. Mm. That's th- this is a complete waste of our time. Mm-hmm. This is this that's not it doesn't work. And he took that and turned it into he said this is really important for you. You this is important that you articulate what those are. And what we ended up with is what we called observable behaviors, which was if you said teamwork was a value, collaboration was a value. What does that look like right, when you right, see it? Right. And that's where we spent our time. What, are the, what does it look like? And then we said, at the end of the week, let's come together as a team and have anecdotal evidence of what that mm. looked like. Mm. So one was, act like you own the company. Uh, that's a good one. Like, yeah. Then you right. take responsibility. So right. we had those observable behaviors. And that's, that I've carried that to this day, that I think it's what do values look like. And then train yourself to pay attention to those and then measure them. Now I'm a martial artist, and those values are courtesy, integrity, perseverance, self-control, and indomitable spirit. Mm-hmm. And those are the five things that I've been doing that for 13 years now. We had a, a, someone apply to work at Intranetworks. And I said, you're coming to work for a, a, marsh, a company that's run by martial artists. And that is actually more important than what we do, how we are, how we behave to one another, mm-hmm. to our customers, to our partners. That's, that's inviolate. Yep. And I said those things. And afterwards, she said, I want to work here because I've never had anybody talk to me like that. I've never worked at a company that, said, that put that much emphasis on that, and I've, I've never forgot that mm-hmm. one-hour conversation. Well, I think what strikes me about what you guys did isn't just that you spent a lot of time thinking about what you about these behaviors. It's that you 
or the culture, you took it from you took it from just some ideas on paper and made made it discernible for the whole company to understand. Right. So it's one thing for me to say, I think customer comes first and then go back to work. You know, like, well, okay, we all kind of think that. What does that mean? Whereas you were able to actually say, this is what it means. So when a customer does the following, like orders the BLT and right. claims they didn't want bacon, like, we don't throw our hands up. We say, you're right, let me, I'll bring, I'll just take the bacon off and bring it right back, right? right. <laughs> Whatever. You're going to make them happy. Um, I really like that because I think a lot of companies spend probably more time than they should on just defining culture in a very esoteric way, but then they don't do anything to curate that culture or to make people accountable or frankly explain that culture other than the words on paper. Because you, know, you can read something, I can read something, the 250 people in here can read something, and we're gonna come up with different interpretations. That's just the way a human yeah. mind works. Yeah. But if I give you specific anecdotal illustrations, it's much harder to come up with different interpretations of that. Absolutely. It's possible, but it's, but it's more difficult. Let's, uh, let's take the first student's question. Hey, Mark. It's, just keep going. Right. When you first started creating the journey of uh, intro networks in the brainstorming process, what did you envision your final product to be like, and how is it different from it actually turned out? The, um, in any, at the beginning of any process, I'm, we're trying to identify what the problem is we're solving. Mm -hmm. And the problem with intro networks, it wasn't called that. We didn't, it was actually called uh, just intro. And we came into trademark problems, so we had to change the name. Uh, but the, the problem we were trying to solve was we had uh, 900 people coming together at the TED conference who had at least one thing in common. Mm. They were TEDsters. Yep. And they were interesting okay. by default. They had been invited. They'd all, they were accomplished, but we didn't know what they were accomplished in. Mm -hmm. And we, I'm so, I mean, like, I'm really interested in people. I was right. like, I want to know these people. So I wanted to know more about them. So it was, the, the thing was identifying the problem. And what's, what's really interesting is that that has not changed in 13 years. And in fact, has not been replicated or duplicated in any of the online communities that are out there. This idea of a deep profile where I have information about what's, what's really important to you, not favorite movies and books. Right, and, right. and it's all, it's interesting. But what we learned from Chris Anderson when we built that first one was it's the values that we share that will build a strong bond that will last after the conference. So we said, well, what's important to you? What are your values? And we gave them a long list to pick from. And then they, and we knew that now user experience is a thing. Right. But we knew that how someone actually interacted with that and, and uh, bonded with it, if you will. So I would, I would talk to people. I said, well, because I'm always wondering, what do you think of the software? Did you like it? Yep. All that. And they go, you know, I'd never really thought of myself as a brand before. What are the brand mm, characteristics mm. of me? Because mm -hmm. yep. those are the words, right? right. And they go, Th thank you for that. That was really great. Uh, it reminded me of, I would look at TED, uh, Sony would have terminals all over the place. And it's not like now we're, you all have, you know, we have laptops. We all have a terminal. It, it, exactly. <laughs> um, and I see this guy using it, and I'm like, oh cool. So I go over and I sit down and I'm talking to him, and I, what do you think? And he's giving me really good feedback, mm. like expert level feedback. And I go, wow, dude, you really know what's going on. And I look at his name. It's Mitch Kapoor. Uh, <laughs> right? He was the founder of Lotus. Say, he invented the spreadsheet. Right? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, he knows a little bit about software. So, so. to put it in monitor, it's a Google Docs, that Excel looking thing. Yeah, he invented that a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> so, the, so the thing is, is, and now the question was, is it different now? Uh, the, the product is the core idea has never wavered. The stuff that's around it has changed because as people come on, they need to do this and they need to do that. Yep. And recently, with my, my clients, as I'm coaching them how to get the most out of this, I actually have stripped away all the other stuff we mm -hmm. added mm -hmm. and said, what's really important is this, because yep. there's actually better ways to do all these other things but there's still no way to do, do this. this thing. Yep. So let's figure out how this becomes a nice neighbor to all the other things you need to do. Yep. 
And that's usually important too for entrepreneurs. We often will throw a lot of things out there, features, try to figure it out. If you, know, if you look at the story of Twitter or Instagram or whatever, Snapchat, you look at their, their products went from mac, more macro to more micro. It's opposed to the other way around. You know, they said, well, let's, let's try a bunch of different things. What are people using? Oh my gosh, they're only using filters on our photos. Right. That's kind of what they like. Right. Let's do that. Right. And instead of being right. one of 500 um, photo apps, they became one that, that people really adopted because of the filters. I have a philosophy about that. Um, when you're sitting down, now, again, things are different now in agile environments where you're, we're changing every two weeks. It's yeah. kind of constant change. That's right. kind of how it is. But I call it the press release strategy, which is, okay, we're going to do a release, it's, whether it's a major, let's say it's a major release, um, and you're writing the press release for it. We haven't done it yet, but you're going to write the press release mm. for it. Um, so you get uh, a line to set the context. You get three bullets and a closing line. That's it. And that's all that anybody's ever going to read, right. and that's all anybody's That's all they'll remember. And users, yep. the same thing. So don't give me this list of, well, we're going to do all this stuff. I don't care about that. Let's do three things really well that will work in a press release. And that's, that's heretical. That's mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of anarchistic but thinking. That, but I think that's still, still, that concept still scales back to a scrum environment. Exactly. It just, you know, there's just more cycles and maybe you have one bullet instead of three bullets. But, right. but the idea that let's just think about what really matters in this right. next rev and not right. 500 things that don't. Which gets back to having really good communication with your user. Yep. And now what's great is the tools that we have, we can track all user behavior yes. and we yes. know everything. We just finished, I've been working for a year on building an artificial intelligence for a client in New York and I know everything about their use and we know what work, what doesn't work, mm-hmm. where they're falling. I mean, all of that stuff that we never had before. Yep. And I've got an AI underneath that as well that's helping. So I think that the, the world for developers now is so much better than it was when we were doing Wavefront and even with intro networks. Yeah, well, it just gets better and better. And yeah. I think the other key is don't be dogmatic. So you go into, oh, yeah. oh, I think this feature's great. Everyone's going to love it, maybe. But if you find out they don't, then you just... Stop focusing on that or even take it out of the product entirely. Best idea wins. Right, right. And the best idea is what the market thinks, not what you think. Well, I, I'm going to challenge you just a little bit on that. Challenge um, That uh, when I'm sitting thinking about what's next, there, I, I think there's four inputs to that. There's, there's the customer. Mm-hmm. The, they've got a big vote. But they're only trying to solve today's problem. Exactly. Right? It's like, this is, I need you to help me do this thing. Yep. If I listen to sales and marketing... It's really, they want to be checklist compliant because they're selling. So I've got to do what everybody else is doing because I'm getting compared to everybody else. Um, And that's a a decent vote, but shouldn't be the overall vote. There's uh, the engineers who say, oh, the last rev, we had to get it out the door and we didn't finish button everything up. Or we know there's new stuff coming. We need to stub in things for that. Well, yep. everything they do is going to be under the hood. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but they get a vote. Yep. And then there's the founder who says, well, I'm, I can see because I'm paying attention to more. And I think we, you know, we need to be going here. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just listen to me, I may make stuff that people don't really need. Right. So it's, it's a balanced conversation between those four inputs is the way I always ran it. Mm-hmm. And then we get really good software. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to look at it. Um, at the go-to-meeting company that I was involved with, they kind of had that dynamic. There was four of us. We all sort of played each of those roles. Right, right. right. Um, and I think that's healthy. Leads to some interesting debates, but it's Ex- healthy. It, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to get the next student question in a minute. And just talking to the mic, it'll, it'll fire up on you. Uh, but before we get there, I want to kind of go back to, uh, we skipped a little bit ahead to, to Wavefront. Let's go back to that transition. So um, you were about 30 it had to do with some extension classes. Tell us about what yeah, happened. How did you, it's funny how, did you, how I... How did you go from chef to... How do I weave back to UCSB? Um, so I was chefing uh, uh, for the Jesuits in Montecito, a private retreat. Mm-hmm. I had a 10,000-square-foot kitchen. I had no budget. I had a, an acre garden. We were farm-to-table mm. before wow. it was farm-to-table and went through 350 cookbooks in five years, mm. constantly inventing wow. and doing... It was, it was incredible. It was a laboratory for me. 
But I was making a thousand bucks a month. The top, I mean, I was making as much as anybody in cooking in mm. town. Right. And raising a family and painting windows and doing, and I still wasn't really moving the needle. Yep. And there was a UCSB extension class called Computer Graphics Art Technology of the Future. And it was uh, taught down in Los Angeles. It was a one day class on a Saturday. And it was the first teleconference, satellite Ooh. teleconference with three other universities. Yep. They had the artists in residence from Jet Propulsion Laboratory and one of the guys who worked on Tron. And in the morning was well, like a three-hour lecture about that. Felt I was like, okay, this is incredible. Then when that was over, we got to stay, and the post group, which was across the street, brought their graphics computer over, first one in Southern California, mm. and we all got 15 minutes was on it. Was it SGI? Or? No, it was a, H, a Hewlett-Packard. Okay. SGI wasn't invented yet. Got it. Well, I'm just wailing on this thing, and teacher says, well, how, how do you know how to even use this? Well, remember, I had holidays on glass, and I had bought an Atari, and I had bought this thing called a Koala Pad, which was the first stylus. Mm. And I was I had 192 pixels, and I used all of them, right, drawing. And so here I am on a 1K display, and I'm just, oh, okay, this, my life had changed. And... I went back the next day, back to work, Sunday, and Father Minister asked, for the Jesuits, asked, you know, what did you do on your day off? And I said, I saw my future. Wow. I want to do that. That was a tap. It was, it was absolutely a tap. I said, I want to do that. And he goes, okay, great. What are you going to do tomorrow to make that dream come true? Mm. No clue. He goes, we got all afternoon. And we sat down, wow. and we made a list, which included contact Hewlett-Packard, the local office here in Goleta, uh, contact the teacher, find out, uh, get a hold of uh, Art Dorinsky, who has worked on Tron, who is still to this day a friend, mm. uh, David M., who was the artist in residence, still to this day a friend. Uh, in fact, Art came up two years ago. I saved everything from Wayfront. I had 2,000 artifacts in a storage locker in Carpinteria for the last 13 years. And we donated that to the Charles Babbage Institute oh, nice. as part of the collection of the early days of computer graphics mm -hmm. so that researchers could come and study. And they took all of that. Nice. It was amazing. But he was there yeah. when the curator came out to look at the collection. Wow, that's very It was cool. pretty cool for me. So the arc is amazing here. And I think it's really instructive for young people. Started out painting windows yes. in a hospital, pediatrics unit. Yep. Where you could have just said, I'm not comfortable, whatever. You did that. That turned into a business. Yep. You got comfortable with the Atari. Yep. got comfortable with how to use that in a very rudimentary form, but you, you figured it out. So the door was, when the door opened to this new world, you were ready to walk through it. Right. Because of all of those other things you had done. Yeah. You had a wonderful Sherpa mentor that sat down yep. with you and said, listen, Mark, how do we do this? And it's hard for you guys to realize, but Mark was reaching out as a young person with no credentials to the leaders in the industry at that point, and they were willing to talk to you. They were willing to help you. I don't think that's that uncommon. I think students need to understand that they can do that. They're not going to get a 100% hit rate. You said no credentials uh, before Besides we came. Besides good looks. No, no, no. Your charm. You're, no, you're dead on. Your I want to talk. I want to speak about no credentials, but I was, uh, before we got here, I was talking to one of the students, and he was like, well, you know, I haven't done anything yet. Right, I haven't. Right. How do I? And I said, dude, what do you mean you haven't done anything yet? You know how to critically think. You're a strategic guy. You can plan. There's yeah. all kinds of stuff you're bringing to the table. What you lack is certainty. Mm. Be certain, but show up with that. Right. Just be, be that. Own that. It's like the lion and the wizard Just of Oz. Own right? it, right? You got courage. So the no credentials. So um, you know Larry Burrells, yeah. uh, software.com, uh, and he was my partner at Wavefront. And we get the call from uh, NASA to come to uh, Houston. They need to make the recreation of the Challenger explosion to show to Congress what happened because Congress doesn't understand. Yep. They're going to make this video. So we go there and we show them. This is the early day. I mean, real, real early. We were six months old. We go to lunch afterwards, and uh, we're with the head, the head guy, right? And we're just getting to know one another. And he finds out what Larry's background is, and he, he looks at me, and he goes, so what are you? He says, I was a chef. <laughs> and Larry's kicking me <laughs> under the table. And like, don't tell him you're a chef. What are you doing? Right. So I was a chef. And Gunter says, 
I too was a chef.、Mm. He was a chef in the Austrian palace, and we became lifelong、oh, yeah. friends until he passed away.、Ah. Uh, but just own that stuff, don't. Right, and, right. and I had that we brought in a CEO at Wayfront、um, as we were getting ready to go public. He brought me into the office, and he said,、uh, "So when are you going to go to college?" So why 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 go to college? He goes, well, you're never really going to amount to anything unless you get a college degree. I says, oh really? He says, I hired you.、Right. I started this company that you work at. <laughs> so I don't buy the credentials thing now.、Yeah. Now I think that there's there's an ante now that you kind of have to do because、right. you don't even make it through the HRQ. You don't even get to have that meeting where someone can fall in love with you or say, yeah, you're that person. Right.、Um, So I think there's some things you have to do, but it's still going to get down to: Are you a great communicator? And when I sit down with that hiring manager, can I get them doing their head yeah, like you're like doing、this. right now? Yeah, right? Says、so、I want you to hire me. Like on a string. Like, like、um, yeah. So, can you imagine life without me in your company? Exactly. When can I start? Exactly. <laughs> I know you don't know the answer, but if you did, what do you think it might be? Exactly. <laughs> He just hypnotized me. Exactly. I'm screwed. We'll take, we'll take the student's question. So、uh, the chef, the switch from chef to software entrepreneur is quite unique. What what advice do you have for young college students and young professionals about like the risks that you took, and how did you address those particular risks?、Uh, there was a there was a huge risk because I was cooking, and that was you know that was a steady paycheck, and there was the windows, and that was. Steady in the sense that Christmas time, Halloween, whatever I could paint windows, and that was cash. But we were doing wavefront at the same time, and that was taking all of my time. And it's like I had to, and I had a young family, so I kind of I had to stop cooking. And I and I remember this specifically was Thanksgiving because that's when we right、mm. after Thanksgiving is when we you start painting. I'm going to quit cooking. I'm going to paint as many windows as I can from five in the morning till midnight, and make enough money to hold me until Larry could we could get a paycheck.、Mm. And I said, "How how long do you think it'll be before we get paychecks?" And he said, "I think February or March." So that was full risk. But、yep. you know, we we talk about as entrepreneurs, you need to be, and then sometimes you're just stupid. And and so I was young, and it's like I'll, I'll figure it out. I've right, always right. figured it out. So、yep. I think you have a a trust in your own ability to figure it out. I'm a Boy Scout as well, yeah, so I、yeah. know it. I've always landed on my feet, so I just trusted that. I think、yep. you trust your you trust your instincts and be ready for the tap and kind of follow what you're passionate about. And and don't believe that. Just because there's a lot of people doing it, you can't be successful. I'm all about one percenters. I'm all about. I mean, the TED is there's this red circle. There's one idea, and that idea is going to get catapulted out in the universe, and that might be the idea that changes everything. What I've seen, so as you said, so many of the people through the new venture competition have gone on.、Mm-hmm. Same thing on the TED stage. I can't tell you how many of our speakers are now professional speakers, written books. Making bank,、mm-hmm. doing that one thing that they were scared to death to do. Right. So I just was like, just go, because you know what? Most of the people are gonna. F- they don't have the perseverance. Remember、right. that third、yeah. tenant, perseverance. Yep. They don't have that. If, you, if you at least have perseverance, you're just gonna keep going, right? You're gonna keep going, and the other people, I'm gonna be that one percent. I'm gonna win. Bo Eason tells a story. He said, "You're already a winner." Well, what does that mean? He says, "Well, there were 300 million sperm competing <laughs> for one egg, and you won. So you already are a winner. You beat 300 million other people of the sperms. So if you frame it like that, right? What? Well, but I I, I completely concur.、Um, if you don't believe in yourself, how can you expect anyone else to believe in you? Somebody they won't. Somebody I was talking to somebody about a. I don't think it was a university. Something I was applying for, an opportunity, and they said, "John, you realize thousands of people are applying for this, and there's only ten slots." And I was a little bit of a smartass. I was a lot younger, and without thinking, well, obviously with thinking and not reserving、um, my comment, I came right back with, "Well, that's nine more slots than I need." That's right. And、exactly、I got it. Right. I got in. Yeah. So it's just like I just had that. I'm like, "Well, there's ten. Great. Nine other people are going to get in too." Like、yep. I just felt like. 
this is something I want. I, I can do this. I have confidence in, in my ability to do it. Um, let's go back to Larry um, because co-founders are hugely important. You talked about balance. Yeah. You talked about the vision and the yeah. tactical. And, and I found that in my life with, with my wife, my wonderful wife. And um, you know, partnering in life is a very important Huge. thing. Finding simpatico people um, in business and in your personal life. Talk to me about not just Larry specifically, although we can talk about him. What were the things in general that would be instructive to folks at the front end of their career when they're looking for that co-founder uh, co or, or other founders? A lot of the times it's just opportunistic. It's the right person at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in his case, his wife saw me painting a window. Really? And uh, I was painting downtown Charles Schwab. And I was painting. She goes, how's it going? You're still painting? Yeah. Just, I said, but it's all different now. This was mm -hmm. in that period mm -hmm. where I had quit cooking. Yep. And um, no, it was, it was the year before that. And... I said, I'm going to do computers. I saw this thing. I did this class. Blah, blah, blah. She says, Larry's doing computers now. You oh, should wow. talk. And I knew Larry and Wendy because they were customers of mine at the Presidio Cafe. And we, I met them because their son, their, their oldest, was running through the cafe. And she was chasing him saying, Orion, Orion. And I was like, oh, stop it. My son's name, Orion. There can't be two Orions. That's too mm. unique of a name. Yep. And that's how I met them. Nice. And as it turns out, now that we both have grandkids, both of us have grandkids named Lincoln from our Orion. How weird is that? <laughs> that is weird. So, but the answer to the question is there's that opportunistic. Right. Is, is that person put there and you're just so open and present and aware? But now I look at it, I, I'm, you want to understand what you can and can't do and what you need exactly. to fill. Yes. Right, so it's it's a puzzle that you're building, yep. and uh, it is like a, a a marriage. Luckily, my wife is my partner at, at Intro Networks, but we had to do this. We um, we had a coach um, who helped us with this, who said, you know, make a list of all the things that you love to do, and figure out where the crossovers are, where the gaps are, and say, okay, if you both love to do this, which one of you mm. you could say, I don't want to do that, only because. Uh, when people look to you, they don't want to look at both of you. Right, Which one right, is right, mom or dad right. going to make the decision? Exactly. It's yep. like, no, I do this, you do this. To this day, with our um, TED business, she's everything inside the circle. She's a speaker coach. Mm. I'm everything outside the circle. The cameras, the set, the people, the user experience, the promotion, the marketing, everything else. Outside the circle, inside the circle. Yep. So our teams know who to go to. Yep, and it minimizes the conflict. Of and there's another thing that I would uh, that I use when I'm attracting people. Uh, it's the four W's: wealth, wit, wisdom, and work. So I only have I, one of those. You I maybe have two. It's work. Uh, so does the does the person have the wealth or the connections to money that you're going to need? Do they have wit? Are they fun to hang out with? Are they just funny? And because you, you're going to spend a lot of time with that person, yes. uh, the wisdom. Are they, are they smart? And are they willing to do the work? And so I say, well, I, I need two of those. And if I get a third, I'm happy. I don't need to have all four. Mm. That's fine. Mm. But I need to have two, and I need to. We need to uh, be aligned in what those two are going to be. Yep. No, I think that's brilliant. I've never heard the four Ws. I like that. Yeah. And a lot of it is. It's, it's knowing yourself well enough, I think this is true in any relationship, knowing yourself well enough to really be a good partner with the other person. And that comes with time for a lot of people. I think it came, I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s, but if I really knew myself well enough to be a good business partner at, a, at the senior level. I wish I knew when I was 20. Of course. Right? But I, I think there's, um, I would say three things were I to advise my 20-year-old self, one would be to meditate every day. I thought that was a profound waste of time. Mm. I couldn't disagree with myself anymore. Um, I use an app called Headspace. Uh, and it was, uh, there was a little project. We had to do it for 10 days. I was like, hold it. That is not at all what I thought it was. That's really good. Mm. And I've been doing it 363 days in a row. Wow. Um, Every day, wake up in the morning, I do that for 15 minutes. And I couldn't recommend that any stronger to help you get centered. 
and learn how to be centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the second is was the what I learned on the mat in martial arts. I had no, I did not, I'm not the karate kid. But at 53, I got a black belt. At 50, I started, and I was like, huh, this is also not at all what I thought, mm-hmm. and to learn how to persevere, learn what indomitable spirit means. Yep. means I cannot be dominated. So now imagine a business guy. Now I'm in a situation where I've got people coming, at, just peppering me with stuff, and I'm just just deflecting that. I'm just, oh, really? Oh, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, yeah. Ain't no thing, right? And the, and the third is improv. So I started improv two years ago, and that has taught me how to be extreme hyper-present, how to not have the conversation chambered up here. I'm just waiting for you to shut up so I can talk. Yep. Um, and improv gets you uh, on stage, and you're not afraid. It doesn't matter. The audience wants you to be successful. Mm-hmm. The audience loves you. Yep. And uh, so those three things, if as a young person, if you were to do those, which have nothing to do with being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. being a businessman, mm-hmm. but they, they, you fix yourself, you, you become really solid. Yep. And then what you bring to the table is huge. That's great advice. And I think the getting on stage and getting comfortable doing the improv, help, you know, that fires your mind. But I think there's another lesson here for everyone no matter how old they are, is you're never too young to take up something new. I, mean, I, oh. I took up surfing late in life. I wrote about oh. it, and I got a lot of response from people because I got res- a variety of responses, but a lot of people said, I thought I was too old for fill in the blank. Like, are you kidding me? Are you, are you ambulatory? Can you get up? Like, can you then try it, right? Um, and I'm, I'm doing that with a couple other things this year where now I've got an annual thing where every year I want to try something new. I'm not going ma- to be the, the best surfer in the world, but I'm going to get proficient. I'm going to be able to get good enough to enjoy it, whatever this thing is. And I think that's, that's just a good thing for everybody to do. It fires off. I mean, it, again, if you're insanely curious and you like to do new things, yep. then going out of your way to learn something new, right. uh, it because... It, um, uh, what is uh, confusion means you're about to learn something. Ah. And you're I'm... in that state of, I, I don't know how waves break. I don't know about sets. Right. I, don't know, I don't know anything about that. Um, or in this case, I don't know what makes good comedy. I don't know. There's rules to all of that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know them. But through reps... I'm going to learn them because I want to learn them and I want to be good at that, yep. just like anything else. Because no one's got a gun to my head to say, you have to do those things. Yep. I know I'll be better. I'll show up in anything that I do better as a result of doing that, which makes me more valuable in a, a nonprofit thing. People are going to listen. People want to follow, and they like my leadership skill. Yep. The only thing I would add to that is just noting the obvious, which is, I think you're right. When you're confused, you're about to learn something if you persevere. Give up, you're just going to be confused. Well, the world is littered with people who have given up. (laughs) And I love that curve, right, of of like um, unconscious incompetence and conscious competence. And I, for for surfing, I was in that unconscious, I was in the conscious incompetence for a long time, and it's finally kind of got a little bit out of that. I mean, I took, this year I took up golf. I mean, who takes up golf in 54? Who takes up golf in 54? Never played before. And I'm never going to be great, but I'm going to play the game and enjoy it. Exactly. And I'm not going to give up. I'm going to persevere. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.